When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Lynn Bloom about her book titled Recipe, published by Bloomsbury in 2022. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Could you start us off introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Okay. Um, I am a passionate home cook. I'm an English professor with nonfiction, among other things, and autobiography, and I always loved to write. So it seemed like a natural thing to write this book for a couple of reasons. One was that everybody now is interested in food, and Bloomsbury Academic has a terrific series called Object Lessons. The motif of the series is looking at the secret life of objects. They define objects pretty broadly, and it was a challenge. I wanted to see if they would accept a book with this subject, and I wanted the challenge of writing it. It's a short book. They won't allow more than 30,000 words maximum, which in print runs to 150 kind of small pages. And it's a quirky series, with very personal voices and very um, idiosyncratic interpretations of the subject. So I thought it would be a terrific challenge, and I started it um, during the beginning of pandemic when we were locked in and had needed something to do. And I also needed to write it because my son developed malignant brain cancer, and I had to have something constructive to think about that would put me in another world. And I resolved to write this book without a scintilla of grief. And I think I did that. Absolutely. It's a fascinating book. And I think one of the reasons is because each chapter has a very clear sort of focus and voice. So can you maybe explain to us how you chose what each chapter would focus on? Yes. I was looking at recipes. uh, I was looking for The Secret Life. What I realized was that people think of recipes as they might a GPS, where they give you a direction from how to proceed from start to finish. 
And the promise of a recipe is twofold. That one, that you can make it successfully if you follow the directions. And the implicit promise is the food will be delicious. So the recipe writer has to make sure that there's enough information in this step-by-step -step process so that people can follow it without getting lost. And yet, that except for baking, that anybody who wants to improvise can add their own orientation to it and come up with an individual dish. So um, I chose the recipes. Um, the first chapter is called First Turn and Face the Stove, the recipe as an instruction guide. I was looking for recipes that had a worldwide significance. So for that chapter, I picked chicken soup as the food because almost every culture has some variation of chicken soup. It's called uh, at some places the Jewish penicillin. It's called the chicken soup of the Chinese aunties who have herbs and spices to that have therapeutic properties. Um, the, the second chapter deals with the recipe as conversation. You say tomato, I say tomato. And the I picked two easy foods for that. Salads, which have a ratio of two cups of greens to a quarter cup of protein and uh, maybe a half a cup of additional vegetables and a couple tablespoons of some kinds of uh, spicy ingredients, but infinite variation as opposed to craps, which is the other food in this chapter. And that craps terrify people. They just think that if you if you the if you make it, you will be a you have to be a supreme experienced cook. And yet, the conventional wisdom says of craps. The first one is for the dog. You can't get the first one right because you're working with a hot pan and it takes some skill to flip it. People who can do this say it's easy. I tried all the recipes in that I was, all the foods that I was working with in the book, and I must confess that I'm still terrified of preps, but hey, that's okay. In the third chapter, it's called A Taste of Home the recipe for comfort cooking in tough times because recipes embed the culture of the cook. They embed the opportunities of the ingredients, many of which are worldwide. They have a history of the family culture and the national culture and the regional culture. And so when you're looking at home, you're looking at a lot of different options. I found an essay by a Cuban writer on Thanksgiving, and for the Cuban families, they marinated a pig rather than cooking a turkey, but they treated the pig as a comparable symbol of hospitality and nurturing and inviting people. Um, this leads me to chapter four, the joys of cooking and eating. I call this the Great American Thanksgiving Celebration because everybody in America eats the, a variation of the same meal. As Nora Ephron says, you depart from what your mother did and 
with great peril. You've got to have a turkey, even if you don't like it. You have to have stuffing or dressing. Dressing is beside the bird. Stuffing is in it. You have to have five or six side dishes, potatoes, and the, you have to have both white potatoes, mashed potatoes, and sweet potatoes. And the arguments erupt over whether they have marshmallows on them or not. Uh, you have to have a green bean casserole, other, other casseroles, other vegetables, and you have to have pie for dessert, five or six kinds at least. Many Americans don't like pumpkin pie, but they nevertheless serve it because that's part of the ritual and part of the tradition. Uh, and Americans get very upset if their traditional meal is not used. Uh, they get into big arguments over this, as I have found when I've been giving lectures on this. Oh, and you've got to have cranberry sauce. The, the fifth chapter is devoted to food insufficiency as opposed to the excesses of Thanksgiving. Is at Thanksgiving, you've got to have more food than anyone can eat. You've got to have enough food for leftovers. Everybody brings something. Everybody has to take something home. Food insufficiency is worldwide in every part of the world, even in the United States. 20% of the population have food insufficiency. This comes from waste, and which includes food that is grown but not harvested, or food that is stored and destroyed by rats or other vermin. There's enough food in the world for everybody to have enough to eat, but it's not distributed properly, and so many segments of the population of the world are go-hungry. Despite all of the effort, there's a lot of political um, negotiation in who gets the food, whether they get it shipped in large containers from other parts of the world, whether people buy food locally and are given money to do it. Um, the, there's, uh, there's a debate over whether food is being harvested by slaves, especially chocolate, where children work in the food harvesting areas, and yet if they didn't do that, their families might starve because they need the $2 a day that the parents might get if they work. The children are often sold to the cocoa growers and are paid nothing. The food for that chapter is, I, I use porridge as in Oliver Twist saying, please, sir, I want more, more gruel. Gruel, by the way, is a dreadful food. Gruel is uh, the recipe for Victorian workhouse gruel was two cups of oatmeal, eight cups of water, and two tablespoons of treacle, which is like um, molasses, and maybe a pinch of salt. So if, if Oliver Twist wanted gruel, you could tell how very hungry he must have been because gruel is disgusting. There are, uh, uh, every nation in the world has some cheap food that is grain and a liquid, usually water, and every nation makes the food taste better by adding things to it. 
Uh, they add um, meat and vegetables. If you think of rice as a staple of much Asian cooking, you can think of wheat, you can think of oats or corn in the form of grits. Uh, polenta is a food that needs things to be added. All the grains are bland. All the grains need spice or imagination. Yet people can subsist on a, a diet of grain if they need to because it's got it's high in calories. So through evolution and common sense, if people have access to grain, they have access to food and, and to survival. So the last chapter is a celebration. It's called Play With Your Food. The recipe is jam and the food is chocolate because chocolate is the most beautiful and the most written about food that I could find on the internet. Internet is full of enormous numbers of recipes, and there is more about chocolate than anything. It looks good, it tastes good, it smells good, it's seductive, it's the language of love and celebration and enjoyment. So that's my answer to what I why I put what I put the foods in that I did. Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking us through that. I think it gives a great sense of the book. I'd love to, before I ask about some of those in particular, um, go to kind of the bigger question you raised right at the beginning about we think of recipes as a GPS, but actually there's a lot more in them. So what do you think is significant about what's usually included in a recipe, but also what's often left out? Okay, the significant part is the directions that they provide and the authority, the authority with which those directions are presented. The recipe writer may very well either be a grandmother, a mother, a professional cook, a chef, a home cook. And it's, it, nowadays, somebody who has a blog. And the validity of the recipe depends on whether it can be repeated reliably whether it yields the results that the recipe writer claims and whether people enjoy eating it. However, there's a lot more to the secret lives of the recipe. And I would say you can have what I would call the basic GPS directions. And then you've got the narrative directions because the, the storytelling goes along with the step-by-step -step instructions, either in head notes that the uh, cookbook writer or the blog writer puts in, and those convey a sense of, let's say, Deb Perlman, who has a smitten kitchen blog. Um, she tells you stories about, she, she's had a couple of children while she's been writing the blog, she tells you that she's working in her Brooklyn kitchen, which is very small. She talks about what the family is doing, where the food is going, who else in the neighborhood is around, where she goes to the food markets to buy the food fresh. If she's on vacation or on a book tour, she takes you along with her. She 
Uh, she confesses to loving certain foods more than others and to dietary problems. She brings in her family heritage, her national heritage. She has a dialogue with other chefs and bloggers. It's easier to do this on a blog because blogs have so many photographs and so much commentary that in a printed text would be edited out. Yet a... The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Wonderful cookbook writer like Dory Greenspan has these biographical and, I would say, culinary headnotes, um, sometimes giving histories of the food histories of where she got the recipe from what chef or from what friend or from what relative so that and then she has in the margins alternative ways to prepare the food these are attributed to other people and they may include some steps that a recipe might leave out there's one thing that all recipes in general leave out and that is the fundamentals of how to do some of the basic cooking things. Like a recipe will not tell you how to saute something or how to chop something fast or how to cook, uh, let's say, toast walnuts without burning them. You have to learn that on your own or from other sources that are primers in how to do the actual cooking or from cooking lessons. The exception is Julia Child, uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Julia takes you through everything step by step. She shows you in pictures how to truss a chicken, although you might not necessarily do that. Um, you cannot go wrong if you follow Julia Child because she is the authority. You know when you read the book that she's the authority and you trust her. You have to trust the other book or recipe writers, but some of them are more reliable than others. And I think uh, somebody who's cooked for a while knows who you can trust and who, who you don't necessarily want to follow. And that is often determined by the proof in the pudding. If the recipe doesn't work, you can blame not yourself, but the person from whom you got it. And you're much more likely to go back to the recipes that work than those that don't. Also, the recipes that taste better to you, and everybody's taste is somewhat variable. So are these elements what you mean by the secret lives of recipes? Well, I think the secret lives are the human context in which the recipes are, from which the recipes emanate. Um, they, they come from the culture to the extent that well, I'll, I'll give you an example of macaroni and cheese. Um, Americans, next to pizza, probably macaroni and cheese could be considered the national pasta dish. And 
we didn't get it, but we got it from the French and we got it by way of Thomas Jefferson, who was a servant, got it from the servants of some of the French royalty. On the Jefferson uh, website, you can see the recipe copied in his own handwriting. And American cheese has become both a staple of American food because it was served first in American Southern plantations. It was made by black cooks, and they regarded that as a special dish because it was expensive to buy the cheese. So blacks started using this as a standard celebratory dish in black culture. Americans just like the taste, and you get macaroni and cheese in several ways. One way is the very cheapest way you can get it through Kraft mac and cheese in a blue box. During the Depression in the, in the States, it was advertised as feed a family of four for 19 cents. You can make macaroni and cheese without milk. You can make it with water. It doesn't taste as good. Um, you can buy the cheese powder nowadays on the internet for about $16 a pound. It's really vile stuff, but it looks good. And it's very, it's mostly salt and bright orange coloring. Um, these, this might, the history might be the secret life, whether it's from the craft box or the Thomas Jefferson history. But another thing that is now rivaling craft is Annie's mac and cheese. I have done taste tests with both. Maybe I have a terrible palate. I can't taste the difference. Some people swear they can. Maybe the Annie's has um, more durable wheat than the craft version, but it's a ubiquitous food and students can make it even if they don't have cooking facilities, if they have a hot plate, or there's a jokey cookbook called Radiator Cooking, where you can put something on your radiator and leave it for several hours, and it will it will firm up into whatever you're making. So I would say all of this cultural history is part of any recipe if you start to look at it. Um, one other thing, during the up until about World War II, in both American and British cooking, the view of nutrition was that, no, that nothing was cooked unless it was boiled to death. And it's not surprising that if people look into their own family history, old people hate green vegetables because they were boiled for an hour and a half, even spinach. And nothing retains either its vitamins or its taste if it turns out to be glue. So um, there, there's a cartoon of the 30s in The New Yorker where the child is having a temper, temper tantrum saying, I say it's broccoli and I say they hold with it. Or you can substitute spinach. At any rate, um, this is also part of the history. And new chefs are reintroducing tasty vegetable recipes in which the vegetables are, if not raw, barely cooked. And all of this is part of the secret life because 
it depends the secret life depends in part on the history of any person who's either cooking or eating the food. Absolutely. I can see why gluey food would not be enticing. Um, and there's a lot going on behind what we might see in recipes. Given all of these sort of extra pieces and extra elements, what do you think makes a good recipe? A good recipe. That's it bad. It has to, the, the, the written version has to be clear, straightforward, logical. It has to proceed from start to finish. Although, if you get a head note, or sometimes even in the title of the recipe, you need to know what you're aiming for. So, if it's a chocolate cake, you need to know at the outset that it's a chocolate cake. Sometimes the cake recipe will have uh, the name of the uh, chef or the name of the mother from whom you got it. It has to be uncomplicated. You can, there are a lot of variations on recipes, as I've indicated, but the basic recipe, you have to be able to look at it. I think since most people now are looking at recipes on their phones or on a computer screen while they're writing, no cook is in the kitchen alone because you're there with all the people who made that recipe before and have um, recorded it, it, written it down, it has to be uncomplicated and straightforward. Nevertheless, it has to allow for imagination. So because an experienced cook, and sometimes um, people who haven't done much cooking, have to feel free that they can make substitutions. And this is one reason why you cannot copyright a recipe. You can copyright a cookbook because the cookbook would represent a selection of recipes. It would have a lot of language that the author put in about how things are to go. But a recipe itself cannot be copyrighted because it's subject to so many variations. There used to be a joke, and maybe it's still circulating, that if a hostess was asked for a recipe, she didn't really want somebody to be able to make it as well as she would. She could leave out an ingredient, but people caught on to that. You can't do that with a cookbook. You can't do it on a blog. You've got to be honest and straightforward. And yet most, many people, I think, run through a recipe once according to the directions. And if they're comfortable with cooks, they can make all kinds of substitutions of ingredients, they can add or subtract spices. I have, if, an, if a recipe calls for orange juice, the language often says fresh squeeze, but I think once you get orange juice into a food, you can't tell whether it's been freshly squeezed or reconstituted. A recipe should also be nourishing, I think, of the spirit as well as the body. I, the only recipe I include in my book recipe from start to finish is a recipe for what I consider the best blueberry pie ever. And it's a pie shell with two cups of fresh blueberries. You can add more. And then a sauce made of two more cups of fresh blueberries with a little sugar and a little cornstarch to thicken it. 
that you put pour over the fresh blueberry so that you've got something that tastes good that represents a heritage i got it from a friend who got it from a friend i have never seen this exact recipe in print other than in my book but you can add a pinch of lemon zest you can substitute strawberries in the base instead of blueberries or you can put blueberries in the base and make strawberries on the top you can substitute peaches you can put in a little lemon juice if you want there are a lot of different ways you can do it and it becomes part of the heritage of not just the food but the friendships that are embedded in the way that it's handed down i've met women who it's always women who treasure the little uh, wooden or cardboard recipe files that used to contain an index card, either three by five or five by eight. All of these cards are written by hand, many in copper plate script, handed down from their mothers or their grandmothers. If they've been used, you can tell by the splotches on the recipes. Many of them are recipes people never make anymore. But when you think of the food, you think of all of the combination of cooks and the heritage of the generations. And that's part of the secret, but it's also part of the community of food transmission that goes on un unconsciously. Um, and it's very, very important. Absolutely. Um, as a final question, I think there's so many elements of this uh, people will find fascinating. But is there something that you came across in the research or writing that especially surprised you? There are several things. One is how international the preparation and presentation of food is and how international the conversation is. No recipe is an island and no national cuisine or recipe is confined to that country or even that region. Um, I was surprised at how ubiquitous the interest in food is. People, there are food publications about, there are 250 million food blogs in the world. I just looked that up. Um, there are people take selfies of themselves with particular restaurant dishes and they post them on the web. Uh, this couldn't have happened without the internet. It also surprised me at how passionate people get over what I would consider very small things, like whether you put marshmallows on sweet potatoes or not, or even whether you serve sweet potatoes and mashed potatoes at the same Thanksgiving meal, and you leave out something at the peril. Um, I've also been pleased as well as surprised to see how international the recipes have become um the recipes used to be the province of chefs perhaps french later some big name american chefs and i think they're still around but we now have multi-ethnic food with multi-ethnic authorities and i would say people under 35 have a much hotter palate than people over that. Lots of spices and lots of concern and levels of hotness. 
I was also surprised by the large percentage of food insufficiency in the world, as I've mentioned, 20%, and the UN pronouncements on how to alleviate that food distress and the amount of governmental control over what goes into nutritional food supplies for people who are underserved. I was also surprised by food fads. They come and go. If you look at even something like kale, five years ago, you would get maybe five million hits on the internet, even for something like kale. Now it's diminished. Um, and I can't, uh, uh, spices are in, Sabasha is in, uh, edamame might have been the vegetable for a while. I'm not sure what today's current vegetable is because they come and go quickly. Two other things that I was surprised about. One was the team effort it takes to produce cookbooks. Um, it's not just the chef sitting there in the kitchen doing it. You've got teams, the way you have teams for producing movies. You've got food stylists. You have testers. And the testers are invaluable because they keep making iterations of the recipe until they get it right. You have editors of both the recipes and of the filming, you of the pictures. You've got book designers, you've got a marketing team, and you have the chef uh, who has a public persona. And we believe that these are the people behind the persona. I don't know, because I haven't, I've seen and met some in the course of my life, Ruth Reichel, Dory Greenspan, and some others. Um, they are appear to me to be the people they are. They're very different, much warmer and friendlier than Martha Stewart, who really controls everything. Um, and the thing that I would have put in the book I, these things are in the book in one way or another, but the one thing I didn't see before it went to press, but I would have put it in, are tombstones with recipes on them commemorating the favorite food of the person who is in the tomb. There's a favorite picture of mine called Kay's Fudge. It's a beautiful tombstone. It has the recipe on it, and apparently they had the wrong amount of vanilla and they had to wait until somebody else in the family died because they needed to have the recipe amount changed, and they were waiting until the engraver could come and put the other name on the tomb as well as the right amount. So I think that it also struck me throughout, maybe it's just my temperament, I tend to be optimistic, which I think cooks do. You want to believe that you will succeed in making something. And in a world where we have little control over some big existential issues, we have control to an extent anyway over the way that we prepare the food and the amount of enjoyment we have in eating it. So even in a refractory world, we can find success in both cooking, eating, and particularly in sharing both the food and the conversation with other people. Yeah. Lovely. Lynn, thank you so much for sharing your time and introducing your book, Recipe, part of Bloomsbury's Object Lessons series with us.